Bible passage of the Bible. Like this is the one that like you can't mess up. And probably I was going to say like every middle school boy loves this passage, but I think it's like every man, like every boy from age like four to, you know, 92 loves this passage because it has intrigue. It has imagery. It has blood and knives and fire. Like what boys like fire and knives, right? I know me growing up, that, that's what I loved, right? <laughs> so that's, this is the, the uh, interaction between the prophets of Baal and God, between them and Elijah. We're all familiar with the story, and, and it's, it's interesting, even as I was preparing for this message this Sunday, um, I, was, I was looking at various things and seeing what's, what's happening in the world today. And, and I came across a hymn. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of hymns start as poems. And those poems get put to music. You know, they're theological. They tell us something uh, about God, about the scripture. And so I came across this poem by James Russell Lowell. He was a poet uh, in the, the mid-1800s. But this first line, this first stanza of his poem really stuck out to me. He said, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. And it struck me like, that's this passage we're gonna read today. That's in a sense what's happening in, in other parts of the world today. And so let me give you some context for where we've been because it's been a week since we've been in 1 Kings. You may not have been here for this whole series. It's been going on for a while. What's happening here? So in the book of 1 Kings, we know something about the kings of Israel at this period. They're bad dudes, right? <laughs> they are not the guys you want to emulate. Um, I remember Mason a couple of weeks ago talking about Omri or Omri, however you want to say it. He was bad, and then guess what? His son became the king, Ahab, and he had one of the worst resumes you could ever have. Like, his LinkedIn profile, you're not even gonna wanna, like, about him. Verse 33, Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Like, you, that is not a good recommendation <laughs> for the king of Israel. And so, what did, what, what did he do? What did, what did he do? What was it part of his rap sheet? And, you know, Mason kind of had talked about this earlier. I'm going to run through a quick list of those. Because some of them relate to what we're going to talk about today. One, it says, he followed the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Now, when like, I got in trouble at home, my parents never said, like, you are being just like Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Uh, like, <laughs> so what does that mean, right? What is, what, is, what is that talking about? Jeroboam was a king before um, Omri, before Ahab. And what he did was he um, took the things of God and worship of God and tried to add to it or change it. Right, that's really like encapsulates what, what Jeroboam did. He said, um, the, the country is split. I'm gonna set up two calves, one at each end, and we'll worship there, and we'll worship on this day when we feel like it. The, the scripture even says like, he chose this day on his own. Like he chose to worship God, not in the way that God prescribed. He chose priests 
who are not from the line of, of Levi. He said, uh, anyone from any tribe can be a priest. God had set pretty specific parameters for worship. And Jeroboam ignored those or said, I know better. And so in, in since they're saying Ahab did the same thing, what else did he do? He married Jezebel. Um, Mason talked about that in one of his sermons. He served Baal. He served a false god, bowed in worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal. He made an Asherah pole. He made idols that were false. And this isn't explicitly listed in the text, but we can, we can read it in there. Like he allowed his wife, Jezebel, to dictate who the people of Israel would worship. And he turned a blind eye toward her oppression and purge of God's people. Like he, you know, we don't have to look far to realize that Ahab is not someone you're going to name your firstborn child after. Right? He, he's fallen into the trap of idolatry and serving not only the false gods of the region, but in essence making his spouse one of those idols that he worshipped. Like he is not a casual idolater. I know uh, Mason talked about this in one of his earlier sermons. Like it is a theological thing who you marry. Like he said, let us in prayer even, uh, if you're not married yet. There, there are implications for your theology based on who you marry. We see that in the life of Ahab. He, worst of all, is disobedient in his worship of Yahweh. And so, we come to this chapter 18 today, and we've seen Ahab and Obadiah. The, the two, you know, Ahab is the king, Obadiah is his, his right-hand man, you know, and, and Elijah has spent three years kind of hanging out with this widow who's feeding him because God told him, God told him, go to Elijah and tell him it's not going to rain until I tell him it's going to rain, and then Elijah went and hid for a while. So, that's all coming to a point right here today. And we, we can't forget in chapter 17, Elijah had warned them, as the Lord of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. And so now's the time. God's told Elijah, it's going to rain, and I want you to go tell Ahab that's going to happen. God is going to prove himself to the people of Israel and do it in a dramatic fashion. So at the start of this chapter, Ahab and Obadiah are out searching the land for water because there's drought in the land. Like it hasn't rained since Elijah said it's not going to rain. And they're looking for water to feed their livestock, to feed their people, to keep their horses and mules fed and, and watered so that they can defend their country if need be. So Think about the king actually on this expedition looking for water with his right-hand man, and that's when they come across Elijah. And I, I, I love just in the moment of chapter 18, verse 7, when Elijah and Obadiah meet for the first time. It says that when Obadiah recognized him, he fell face down, and he said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And we're going to see in just a minute, this is a much different posture than Ahab has for Elijah in these coming verses. Remember this moment, Obadiah falling down in front of Elijah, because we'll see it again. So let's, let's pick up where we'll start today is in chapter 18, verse 17. And it says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? 
And he replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. See how different Ahab's posture is to Elijah immediately. Like he says, he, <laughs> Obadiah fell down face first and said, is it you, my Lord? Ahab says, you're the one causing all the trouble, <laughs> right? His belief is that the drought in the land can be blamed on Elijah's stubbornness, not on his own idolatry. And isn't it often the case with us that we look to blame someone else for something in our lives quickly? It's like, not nah, it couldn't be me, <laughs> right? It's probably them. Um, this different posture and suddenly Elijah says, I know who has ruined Israel, you and your father's family, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed false gods. And Elijah knows who has ruined Israel and he knows who can restore Israel. So really, in the next verses, he lays out the, the ground rules for this, this coming conflict, all right? And that's, that's where we'll be starting in verse 20. Elijah has asked Ahab to summon all of Israel to Mount Carmel and to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who, it says, eat at Jezebel's table, right? These, these guys are on the royal payroll. <laughs> they're, they're like hanging out in the king's palace. He says, bring all those guys. It's gonna be this throwdown here. And I wanna note here that there are really kind of several layers of conflict in this passage, and where we'll be first is looking at a conflict between the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and God. So Elijah, in verse 20, confronts the Israelites. He says, So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And then Elijah approached all the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Elijah calls out the people's sin in their lack of devotion to God here. Like they are, it says, wavering between two opinions. And you might, you might see a note in your, in your Bible that says uh, this word could be translated hobbling, like hobbling on crutches or hobbling like someone who's had a broken leg and they can't stand on one for too long. They're, they're bouncing between opinions, between gods, and not able to choose, right? This, this is useful for us because we're gonna see this again in just a minute when the prophets of Baal are trying to coerce something out of their God. They're seen dancing and, and bouncing around. It's the same word there as this wavering, as this hobbling. So we get a picture of it, a, like a physical picture of what the people are doing, unable to choose their devotion to God here. And so... Elijah really throws out the stakes, right? He says, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And what do the, what do the people do? It says they don't give an answer. They're, they're silent. Like, is it, is it fear? Is it indecision or, or hard hearts, right? Are they entrenched in kind of self-preservation? They know like Jezebel 
Ahab's wife has been killing everybody who says that Yahweh is God. So let's just, let's just let this ride. Or let's just see what happens, right? Let's just, are they too distracted by things that are easy to see that they've forgotten the fear of the Lord? I think it's evident that their hearts were not focused on or zealous for God. And I think it's helpful for us to maybe realize this might be the easiest place that we can read ourselves into the passage. Often when I'm studying scripture, I'm trying to see where am I in this picture? Am I Elijah? <laughs> no. Am I, am I the bad guy? Am I Ahab? Where am I? The people of Israel had not outright denied God, but they were casually indifferent to him. Like this is the God who we're gonna see answers with fire and they've forgotten it. So the question for us today might be, what has distracted you from seeing the full glory of God? Is it Netflix? That one hurts me. <laughs> is it my comfortable car, or is it a relationship? What has distracted me from seeing the full glory of God? And what have I made a master in my life? And when I think about this moment when Elijah says, you're hobbling between two opinions. I think immediately of Jesus in Matthew 6 talking about our relationship to money. But then he says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either despise the one and love the other, hate the one and love the other. I, we see this even in, in the prophets of Baal and the followers of, of Yahweh and Israel. And so then next, verses 22 through 24, we're gonna see Elijah set the rules of the competition right? Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They're to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers with fire. He is God. And all the people answered, that's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's funny. They went from silence to kind of like, like ah, okay. <laughs> like, we'll see how this plays out, right? Um, but, you know, like even recently the, the Super Bowl was played and there was a lot of discussion about home field advantage. I think in any sporting uh, venue, we talk about that. What advantages are there to the home field team, right? You more often want to see the home field team win. And there was even like after the Super Bowl, this was on everybody's mind. And there was a fake letter from the NFL commissioner uh, saying like to, to counteract this home field advantage thing, we're just going to have every Super Bowl at Cowboys Stadium because they'll never be in it. And that hurt this, this heart of like a Cowboys fan from, for life. But that's something we're familiar with, right? Like this home field advantage. And what does Elijah do? He gives the prophets of Baal home field advantage in a sense. I mean, there's not even like a coin toss involved. He doesn't even say like, okay, we get the ball at halftime. No, like he makes everything most agreeable to them. And he says, you get to choose the first sacrifice. You get to pray for as long as you need. And then the proof of this will be fire, it shouldn't be hard for their God, Baal, who's known as the God of the sun and the God of storms. Like, if anyone could, like, uh, Thor lightning bolt down, you know, it'd be the prophets of Baal. 
So he removes all of the things that could point to a disadvantage in the competition too. He wouldn't have to answer questions about unfairness because he gave them every advantage and opportunity. So let's continue to read verses 25 and 26. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call in the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar that they had made. Like How painful is that verse, but there was no sound and no one answered. For three hours they had cried out with no response at all. And it, to me, like it, it pains me for them and it causes me to then turn to, to God's word and think about all the times in the book of Psalms. We, we probably could all quote something here, but I think of Psalm 34, verse four. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. What great hope we have in that. Or Psalm 40, verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry for help. You could easily list a dozen or more of these types of verses but Elijah sees the prophets crying out and there's no sound, no one answered. And then at noon, he's kind of like ready to rattle them just a little bit, right? And this is the part that we all kind of like sometimes. Um, it says in verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. And they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. Elijah, shout a little louder. Maybe he's having a little bit of fun here, right? Like, and this is probably where all the boys like this little bit of like, uh, you know, mockery or something. Um, I think it's, Something that they regularly did was, was crying out, dancing, jumping, singing. But Elijah says, Baal's probably not listening. Maybe he's on a road trip. Like maybe he's sleeping. Uh, one of these always translates, the, the guys like it, the, the middle schooler potty humor. One of these translates like maybe he's turned aside and is using the bathroom and he just can't hear you, right? That's uh, some, some good mockery. He's just giving him, give him a chance. And it's interesting, we just have to contrast this with Yahweh, God, who in the Psalms, again, is seen as the antithesis of this. Maybe he's sleeping. What does Psalm 121.4 say? Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. Maybe he's wandered off. Second Chronicles, like part of the same story of the kings of Israel says, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And there's really this frenzy that comes after this. Like they intensify things, they cut themselves. There's something that they did to try to prompt pity from their God to say like, as this blood drips, may the heavens have rain in them. And finally, in this raving, we see these heavy words again in verse 29. All afternoon, they kept raving and offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
we finally come to the time that is right for the sacrifice. It's, you know, roughly 3 p.m. when Elijah then calls out to the people in verse 30. He says to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. And then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. And then he said, a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, a third time. And they did it a third time. I love that. Um, and finally, in verse 35, so the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Love that. Uh, if, if Elijah were a Sesame Street character, he'd be the count. I love, he's always counting. Like, do it again. One more. Do it a third time, right? Uh, I want us to notice a few things here, though, in this, in this interaction. Like, it says that Elijah rebuilt and repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. This was likely one of the altars to the Lord that Jezebel had torn down or her followers in part of the purge of the religion of the Israelites. And it's meaningful that Elijah builds it in front of the people. Like you have to believe that they would have been paying attention to everything that he was doing, like every motion. Maybe, like I said, he set the, the rules of the competition. They might have been watching to see like, oh, does he have some gasoline over there? You know, like, no, there's no, there's no gas. Uh, but he takes the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and there's, they're all gathered to see this exchange. It says he builds the altar in the name of the Lord. Remember Jeroboam who built an altar that was not in the name of the Lord? And Ahab who built an altar to the Baals and to Asherah, to these false gods? So just like earlier when he set the rules in favor of the Baal worshipers, in a sense here, Elijah's being super transparent. Like he's showing, I'm not cheating. In fact, I'm gonna make it more apparent how powerful my God is by stacking the odds against myself with all of this water. And so here's something that, I, that I've, I've read this passage so many times since, since I've been a kid, you know, um, and something that I, I didn't think about, I always often think about like how bold it is and how gutsy it is. Like he's just dumping water on the, on the altar. And it struck me in studying this time that Ahab and Obadiah are out looking for water in the land. Water wasn't necessarily something easy to come by at this point. The people need water to live. And here's Elijah saying like, <laughs> dump this bucket on the, on the altar. Like this precious commodity that everybody was looking for, Elijah said, I trust God enough that he's gonna provide water for us even after he lights this, this sacrifice. That's like amazing and incredible indication of Elijah's trust in God. And before, before we move on from that, I just wanna ask this, is it a reality in our lives? This statement that we will only obey God's commands to the degree that we believe his promises. Is it the case in our lives that we will only obey God's commands to the degree that we believe his promises? Like Elijah 
believed God's promises. He trusted that God would deliver in a huge way. So the question for us to ponder, is there, is there something God has commanded you to do in obedience that you don't believe he'll come through on? And maybe, maybe you, you, you tell yourself, I believe it, but are your actions in, implying that? Are you dumping that water on the altar or are you holding it back, saying, I might need that later? Elijah believed in God's promises. And I'm not saying do the thing that God has called you to do so that you get the result that you want. I'm saying do the thing God has called you to do to follow him in obedience. So as we continue, verse 36, what happens? At the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So there's, there's something significant even in the start of this, this passage in chapter, or verse 36. Like it says, at the time for offering the evening's evening sacrifice. And while I think this is, a, this is a helpful clue for us in the kind of chronology of the day from the author, it's also important thinking about the inclusion of that sentence based on what Jeroboam did. He decided when the sacrifice would be made and God said, that's not right. So Elijah does this at the time that's appropriate. Like one of, one of those was he, you know, Jeroboam was guilty of making his own rules for worship of God. And I think it's significant that Elijah's sacrifice takes place at the time of day when God said it needed to take place. Like everything he's doing is in accordance with God's word and his command. And so he is being guided in worship by the one who is worthy of worship here. His desire in worshiping God is not to say like, hey, guess what? I'm the man. Uh, like, I'm not the superstar. What's his desire? He wanted to do this so the people's heart would turn back to God. And I love this, this contrast here. We see the prophets of Baal trying to coerce a response out of their God, like yelling, screaming, dancing, raving. And in contrast, Elijah's this picture of calm and steady faithfulness. He's not loud and fearful. He's confident. And then notice when he prays, God responds. When he says, answer me, Lord. He says, answer me and prove who you are, who you say you are. Answer me and restore the hearts of these people. And it's interesting. He's not at it for hours on end, but God answers with fire and he answers immediately. And I love the detail here that the fire fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and it licked up the water in the trench like there's nothing left. There is no burnt ends that we're putting maple syrup on and smoking a little longer. Everything is gone. He is, his fire consumed up everything. The water in the trench, nothing is left. And we know even in Hebrews it says God is all-consuming fire. He's complete. He's thorough. He's worthy of all worship and praise. 
I think it's possible that God may have even known that if that altar stayed, the people would have used it to worship again later. And he wanted the focus to be on him, not on that altar. Like it immediately, it made me think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Who does he meet there? Moses and Elijah. And the disciples that are with him, they say, hey, we should set up some tents here and make this a place to worship God. And, God, and Jesus, God says, this is my son whom I love. And they say, let's not do that. Let's worship him. So there's, there, that moment came to mind here. It's amazing too, the, the connections. Like we see the people here fall face down and worship God. The result of God's fire falling is that it attests to the acceptance of the sacrifice and his approval of it. And the people saw this, and guess what? They're no longer silent. They no longer don't have an answer. At the beginning of the exchange, they had nothing to say or minimal enthusiasm. Now they've fallen face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Next, we'll see Elijah execute judgment on the prophets of Baal. And while this may seem harsh, I think it's important for us to remember that even his words to the people earlier in the chapter where Elijah asks how long they'll keep waffling, bouncing between these decisions, it's impossible for us to be neutral in our relationship to God. So what does Elijah do in verse 40? He orders them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not even let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. I love that even in this moment, Elijah is confident that God's going to prove himself. And he's like, what's that I hear? Like, rain's coming, right? Because we're going to see in just a minute, like, the rain wasn't there yet. There wasn't even an indication of the rain being there yet. But Elijah told Ahab, I trust the Lord. Rain's coming, so you better go eat something and, and get home, basically. So we get this final confirmation from God in these final verses, like a proof from God that he is who he says he is. And it comes after a lot of the theatrics of the day are over. We've seen fire come down like, like the Bifrost, you know, in the Marvel movies, like it, it evaporates everything. We've seen this big thing, and there's, there's no doubt that God is the God who answers. And as if that fire wasn't enough, he's about to deliver on his promise to finally send rain. So let's read these last few verses of this chapter. Verse 30, 42, so Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and he put his face between his knees and then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up, looked and said, there's nothing. So seven times Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. And then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. And in a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord was on Elijah. He tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. There's a lot that happens in these last few verses. But one of the main questions that really sticks out to me is, when have I prayed for something seven times? Like I am often, like every day on Facebook, scrolling, 
Pray for, the, pray for me in this, or pray for my friend in this. Pray for this person who's sick. And I, I've, I've t- trained myself to respond. I'm praying and then to stop and actually pray in that moment. But do I pray seven times every time for that thing? Not every time. Like some of them I do. Some of them I pray more than that. But sometimes it's this one-time event. And I'm not saying there's this secret formula of the secret sauce of getting your prayers answered, right? But there's this model of persistence and trust in Elijah. Like I believe that if he would have had to pray and send that guy up that hill 30 times, he would have done it. He would have been there. And I, I imagine then even myself, what if you were the one referred to here as Elijah's servant? How many times would you believe <laughs> walking up that hill like, I'm gonna go look again, but I don't know, you know? And then finally he comes back. You know, could you imagine like, uh, oh, it might not happen this time. Like, I've been up there six times, I'm not so sure. Finally the servant comes down and says, there's a cloud and it's this big. Like, it's as big as a man's hand and it's coming. And Elijah says, I know that God is delivering. God is bringing the rain. And so the power of the Lord, it says, was on Elijah. He gets this supernatural strength and power, and it's kind of like a superhero moment, you know, the Marvel comic. Uh, like, he runs ahead of the, the chariot to beat Ahab to where he needs to go. So we've seen a lot today, and it's no surprise there's a, this is a favorite story because it has great details and imagery they're so memorable, but if there's one takeaway for us today, I think it's, it's that our God is a God who answers by fire. He is a God who is the one true God. The Israelites came out to witness this competition between the gods. They fell on their faces and yelled, the Lord, he is God. So we need regular reminders in our lives that the Lord is God. Because not only are our hearts these idol factories that will find something to worship, but they're also prone to wander. They're easily distracted. So we need regular reminders in our lives that God is who he says he is. And we can find those reminders in several ways. These are just a couple as we close out this morning. In our community here as believers, we gather this morning on Sundays, on Wednesdays, to encourage one another in the word and in prayer and in just uh, encouragement to bear one another's burdens. Like our, our membership covenant says we, we confront and rebuke when we see other covenant members in sin, but we walk alongside them and encourage them and pray with them as they stumble or as they struggle. We spend time meditating on God's word. And it provides a regular reminder of who he is. One of the things that we've been doing on Wednesday nights that I love as part of our prayer time is we pray about things that are on our heart, but we pray about things that are on God's heart. And we know those things that are on God's heart by reading his word, which shows us what his heart is focused on. His own glory, (laughs) his own uh, demonstration of his love to us. And we remind ourselves of God's goodness by proclaiming it, speaking up about it. I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged in this church when someone comes up to me and says, this thing I've been praying about, it, it happened. Like, the Lord answered that prayer. Or we've been praying about this situation, this new job, whatever, 
It's a great reminder of God's goodness to us. And as we proclaim it, um, it will remind you of this phrase, the Lord, he is God. So this morning, let's pray and close out in worship. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you demonstrate your goodness and your love to us by sending your son to take our place to repair the relationship that was broken between us. Lord, we thank you that we have a visual reminder in this story today that you created this earth, Lord, and you are the one worthy of worship and praise. God, I thank you that we can reflect on this. And God, I pray that our hearts would be moved to see you more clearly whether that's through reading your word more in depth, through studying and encouraging other believers. But I pray that you would make that a cry of our heart this week. You would show yourself in glory and that it would be to your glory. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.